This iOS 15 update is magical. I can just tell it to ignore everybody, even Slack. What a life. Travis, welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Awesome to have you. You work on a CSS. I think I would call it a meta framework. We can get into that a little bit as we go, but um, we're big fans of frameworks here, and we're even bigger fans of meta frameworks, so this should be fun. Before we kind of get too deep into the conversation, though, you have actually been listening to the entire FS Jam back catalog. I'll be remiss not to ask a little bit about that experience, but first, why don't you just let our listeners know who you are, where you work, and what you do. I'm Travis Waithmere. I currently work at Anonymy Labs, where we build out privacy web solutions. But in my free time, I also am the creator and maintainer of Bedrock Layout Libraries. I have also have a course based off that library now called Composing Layouts in React. Yeah, that's basically what I do. I would call myself a front end, though I, I don't touch like just front end. Kind of like one of these things like you're a full stack, but I really consider myself a front end guy. That makes sense. That does make sense. And I would imagine that listening back to our podcast, you get a good range of a little bit of everything, but maybe a little more back end than, than front end. So we've had, you know, a lot of database people on, we've had people from Prisma, but we really haven't had much good CSS content. You actually suggested a handful of CSS people we should reach out to, which I'm still working on getting them on, but this will be really a good chance for us to get into CSS itself. And if we are the full stack jams, stack, then you can't have a full stack without CSS. What was kind of your journey into this whole CSS world? This kind of goes back to how I got into programming. Like I've been like touching like programming and web development, like little bit by little bit since I was in high school. In high school, I need to, a computer credit to graduate. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take this random computer class. I didn't even know what it was and ended up being programming in basic. QBasic, technically. Basic has apparently like several dialects, but it was specifically QBasic. Love that class. And then at the same time, there was also, this dates me, I'm, I graduated in 1999. They were starting to actually have broadband to the school that they were letting the people who were excelling in the programming course kind of start auditing the new web course that was coming out next year. So I got to play around with early HTML development and CSS development at the end of my senior year with that. And I loved it. And then I walked away because at that time I was really a music guy. I had been in every band class that I possibly could get away with and still graduate. I just never occurred to me, even though I enjoyed that class, that I would want to be a programmer. I did that, started going to college and realized in college that I didn't want to be a musician and I didn't want to be a band teacher because I had just watched my band teacher in high school like start as a new teacher and then two years later like quit because he hated teaching. Realizing being a band teacher wasn't the same as a musician. Definitely could never identify with that. Certainly not. I definitely didn't have that exact same story word for word happened to me. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I had watched that happen in front of my eyes. I'm like, I don't want this anymore. I kind of floundered and took some general ads and I ended up becoming a business major into finance. I was a stockbroker, then compliance officer for a while. And I fell back into programming because I started automating my job as a compliance officer. And the only thing that like got me happy every day was like writing Excel VBA scripts and reading the actual script tags and, and recreating the JavaScript in Excel. 
anyway, that was a long way to it that I finally came back. I decided after I had lost my job as a compliance officer, I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go be a developer because I had lost my job. I couldn't even pay to go to a boot camp. So I was going to, I was taking any free resources I could. I did CS50's Harvard basic computer science class. I did free code camp. I just did whatever I could until I convinced somebody to give me my first job. And then from there, I was able to go. And just like any like free resources, there's a lot of heavy front end. You've talked about this on your podcast. Boot camps, they say they're full stack, but they really emphasize that front end. I think for some reason, the front end is just either easier to get people jobs or it's just easier for people to understand. I don't know what it is, but it seems like the content online, especially that's free, is really front end heavy. And that's what kind of got me back into that. I think with it is its complexity at the same time front end has so much more complexity to it than back ends we're seeing brand new things like graphql take the industry in that but we're seeing things as simple as you know when you're teaching back end if it's modern back ends it's function basis you can't really go wrong with functions so is there so much that you can teach there well there is but we tend to remove a lot of it from teaching i think front end gets reinvented every seven years unlike the back end that's been the same for 20. I think there's also an idea that people can see it, so it, it'll make more sense to them. And I think for the most part, this is this is true. I think some people, their minds work in a little bit of a different way, and the back end does make more sense to them. But for the most part, when you can write some HTML and then kind of see something appear on the screen and then write some CSS to change it and then see that change on the screen, you get that really good feedback loop versus... As you're saying, Chris, you can write functions and then that function will just return some data. But if you're starting from total scratch, you don't even know what a function is yet. So even learning how to write a function, you're going to have to get beyond that before you can just like start seeing something happen. So that's, I think, some of the idea. And then usually you'll kind of work your way further back into the back end and then more people will drop off as you go. And some people will kind of stay where they are. And so you end up with more people on the front end and making more content for the front end. But I also think it works out because as you're saying, the front end is a lot more complicated. We need a lot more people who know front end and can kind of work with this stuff. So it all seems to balance itself out for the most part. You're an educator, so you probably can explain this better than I can. There's that initial hump where things are easy and then you go down to like that pit of like, I know nothing. And then you climb up a little higher because now you know a little bit more and you're more confident. The whole front end has this initial like confidence boosting like ability like you were saying like oh i just put some tags here and things work also you start realizing like css is way more complicated than just the cascade makes it seem like it is especially because when you first teach about it, they're like oh it's just these three levels of cascade it's much more complex there's a whole like calculation based off that but you don't get into that till you start actually going into some non-trivial apps and then yeah things like html like it seems so easy until you start realizing, oh, I have to account for accessibility and all these other things that are all in the HTML. One of the biggest things I think I've seen in CSS in my time is the different ways of producing actually a layout. When I started learning CSS, you would float basically everything on a page. You float left, float right. You'd use clear views, was it? The clear fix, yeah. Clear fixes, all of that. And then we got told, now flex is here start using flex boxes for everything and now i kind of feel we should be using grid for everything and flex boxes like this thing that you should only use sometimes it's confusing but there's so many ways to just put something on a page and then there's also people saying your whole web app should just be a canvas like what that's really the funny thing with css there's the css purists 
all on one side. And I, I said this before, but like, and I'll say it again, like there's some who are just so pure, like don't mess with my CSS style sheet. I don't even want to use tooling or anything. I'm going to manage that thing and I can keep track of that whole style sheet in my head. And then you have the other extreme, which is I hate CSS. It's a horrible language. I can't believe this is our visual language. I'm going to do whatever I can to not write an official CSS line in my app at all. And I'll use whatever tooling I can do to get away with that. I think there's some good balance right in the middle, depending on where you are with your app and your needs. My first big controversial question is, what's your opinion on Bootstrap? If you call yourself a CSS guy. My opinion on Bootstrap, now, and I'm, I'm going to preface this, is not, I have not checked out the latest Bootstrap that's been announced. I haven't even been following it, other than I know it's there. Bootstrap 3, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and for it. A little bit of four. Yeah, basically Bootstrap 3. I got my first job really knowing Bootstrap 3 better than I knew real CSS. And I think a lot of people did when I was coming up because it was great. It made like complicated CSS easy to understand. It's like, I want three columns. Let's just throw these class names. You didn't really understand what was going under the hood. That's fine. It's kind of like learning React like first. Like You don't really understand the JavaScript that's going on underneath, but that's okay. You can be productive and then you can do a deeper dive later. It simplified layout in a time that it needed to be like, because like you were saying, floats isn't as simple as like just float left because then you have to like, well, I want some margin in there. How much margin? I'm not really taking up 30%. I'm not doing three column layout. So it's not like 33 point whatever percent I need to account for. So you had to do a lot of math and it became a lot of who likes to do math. There was still that the only math you had to do was like, okay, I want three columns. So what's three divided by 12? So I want a four. So you had to do that little play, but that was, that's a lot easier to handle for most people. Nowadays, I don't think it's like necessary because CSS, I think, has kind of graduated to the point where it's now a complete language for what it was being used for. That was, I think, the biggest problem. CSS was incomplete when it first got adopted and we were using it for more than what it was technically written for. It didn't account for like actually doing layout the only layouts was normal flow and floats and all that that's part of what they call normal flow and floats is really just designed to float an image or a div on the side that's supposed to be in a side and allow the main content to wrap around it that's all it was technically written for but we were using it for these complex layouts before we get too deep into some of the css stuff i would first like to hear the origin story here because i think this uh project has a pretty cool origin story based on just the things you've told me that uh, you open source this to send a message to your last job that they should have let you open source it right yeah, well, I mean, I was part of two different design systems. The first one I was more of a junior developer on, so that was never even part of my discussions to try to open source it. I know the, the leads on that team wanted to, but the biggest one was when I was at R1, I was hired to create the design system team. I was the new tech lead, and we were building the design system team. And I'm like, hey, I would like to open source it. I got this interview with management to be like, I really want to do this, here's all these benefits that we can do. We can integrate with Figma and all these things a lot easier if it's just actually on an open source and not in some private NPM repository. Before I could even get like a word out, they're like, no, we're not going to do this. I was just like, okay, that's it. And I was going on vacation soon after that, just for the, my Christmas break. And that week, I just spent all my free time moving everything that like the part that was like my bread and butter that I was bringing to the table. We had a designer who was doing all the design tokens and all the style guide and all that. 
But I was bringing this like layout library that I've been learning through different sources and this concept of composing layouts. I'm like, I'm going to do this and not just do this. I'm going to do this right. And I hired a guy at Fiverr to go get me a logo. I'm like, I'm going to make a website and everything. And I'm going to make this a brand in and of itself. I did it in a week, got the first few like components in there and just kept adding to them. That's really cool to hear. I like the Fiverr part. Fiverr is this risky thing for me. I keep thinking everybody on there is just going to rip someone else's work off and then say that they made it. But there's probably some pretty good stuff on there. And your logo looks pretty good, to be fair. Actually, I was surprised. I was like, I just want a logo. Here's my name. Find something. And I was like, this is pretty good. I gave him a $10 like bonus on top of that. That's pretty good because I think Fiverr gets a bad rep sometimes. One of the big things to talk about with the framework is that it's based on styled components as the base. Yep. Why styled components and not emotion? <laughs> not emotion. It's a good question. Uh, no, it is. Why emotion and not any other ones? Hmm. Have you heard of these new ones called like Stitch? Oh, yeah. And there's down in Australia, the CSS Braid guy. I can't think of his name. He was part of CSS modules, but now it's vanilla extract. That's what it was. That's the new kind of cool thing going on. But style components, honestly, because, A, we had decided to use style components in our design system at R1. That was one of the the decisions we had made that we were going to make that as our base, partly because of my influence, because I actually do like style components. And I've been using it long before Emotion came in. And I hadn't ran into a compelling reason to switch to Emotion while I was in the style components thick of things. And at this point, it's sixes as far as like performance, the difference between them. There's really not that big of a difference between the two libraries. They really push each other to be better. But anyway, style components, when I decided to keep style components for Bedrock, because A, it made it easier for me to rewrite the components I had already written in our other style to Bedrock. And just, it's my go-to like library. When I write an app, I typically bring in style components on my own. In the team, we'll make that decision. But if I'm just going to write something on my own, I usually bring in style components. I like the way I write components with it. And I like the way it keeps the style logic separate from everything else. And I typically want more than just CSS. I typically want a little sprinkling of JavaScript. And so if I'm going to do that, style components makes that a lot easier to handle than anything else. I've gone backwards and forwards on multiple of these CSS and JS to post CSS back to it. Don't forget twin.magro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in there as well. What I've learned is that there's definitely a place for all of them. And it's picking the right one for the right thing you're doing. 100%. I actually had styled components plus twin in an earlier version of our dashboard. It was making the compile times like five minutes, six minutes. It was getting crazy. I replaced it with just standard Tailwind, obviously through PostCSS and the JIT. And it went down to a minute to two minutes. And I was like, wow, all of this extra CSS, what was the point of it? But the point of it all was that it was providing this really nice Santex to work with that I do really enjoy. I really enjoy the styled Santex. And, you know, when I said why styled over emotion or whatever, because styled components really set that Santex in place. And I think a lot of people do enjoy it. And that's what you miss out on with Tailwind. It's just scattered everywhere along all your class names. Exactly. My opinion of Tailwind is that it's kind of like this has the same relationship as CoffeeScript has to JavaScript. It's not like high enough to really, I don't really call it a framework. 
in the sense that it's a bunch of like design tokens and design decisions. And then everything else is like, but the language is written with classes. Anyway, it's doubled down in that. I think that's why a lot of developers like Tailwind because they have a bit more freedom than they have with like a bootstrap or an ant or material, but they still get some good defaults. And I think that's why Tailwind has taken off. Mm. I think it is only because we're seeing a majority of front-end developers that focus on the design. And I think this is something that not much of the industry is talking about to some extent, is what kind of front-end developer are you? Do you just want to put some graphs and forms and some tables on a web page and call it a day without thinking about the design? Then Tailwind's definitely not the thing for you because you're going to be wasting all your time deciding what a button is. When if you go to something like Bootstrap or Bloomer, Bulma, whatever's out there, it's just a button. You just type button and it's done. It is this thing of like, while we think Tailwind is really, really popular, it is, but it's also the people that are shouting the loudest about it or the people that are like, look at my design that I made in Tailwind when the people that just make 20 dashboards don't really care about that. Or you had the people who are building like Gatsby sites or CMS sites, you know, WordPress themes or whatever. Like that's not going to be helpful in those kind of cases because you're out, you're also having to deal with other people's markup and classes. And then you're like injecting things on top of that. It's like you were saying, it's like what kind of front end developer? That's a huge spectrum right in itself. You have people who are building complicated, sophisticated. It's like why like there's 30 different ways to manage state with React by itself. Because everybody has different needs. And some people are like 100% everything is in the server and they don't want to maintain any state on the front end beyond is my tooltip open or something like that. And then you have other people who have to keep large, complicated things and data processing in the browser. And they know that and they have to build around that and optimize for that. I think it's the same thing with CSS. You have people who need to build like templates for CMSs and things like that. And then you have people who need to customize and, and have sprinkling of logic that only javascript can do at this point riddled throughout their app to control their styles and everyone's right in the decisions they make yeah so i'd like to get more into your specific project here bedrock layouts i would be curious whether it's aimed at people who we've been having this conversation about you know do you kind of build your thing your library or framework so that you barely have to write CSS, you don't really have to know CSS very much, or do you kind of aim at more people who want to get down and dirty with the CSS? So do you feel like you're abstracting away CSS, you're enabling people to write more CSS? Like who is it kind of aimed at in that respect? It is aimed at really anybody who wants to just follow some common patterns and think about layout as a pattern rather than a specific technology. When I go into like, for example, the stack component, I go to this a lot because it's really easy to understand. This whole purpose is to stack something on top of another and have a space between them. Well, whether I'm using Flexbox or using Grid or just using normal flow, you shouldn't have to care about that as the, the person using it. It should just be like, I know that if I put this and I pass in the correct props, I will have something stacked on something else and I'll have space in between it. And that's really what I've tried to do with all of these. And at the same time, I've also gone with the intention of I shouldn't recreate anything across components if I can avoid it. And if I need something in components, I should like compose those together. So for example, if I wanted that stack to also have padding around it, it should be composing a pad box around the stack. The stack shouldn't know about padding. 
It should just know about stacking something on top of the other and putting space between. That's been my my opinion of how a layout library should be. If these don't match what your requirements are, then you, yeah, you need to dive a layer deeper and go to the actual CSS. I think these things can be super useful to get things moving faster. I find with myself, I don't actually write down my layouts how I actually want them to look. I just visualize it in my head and then code it as fast as I can. I'm one of them type of people. I like to get a rough draft first, you know, get it down as fast as I can, you know, not looking pretty, just in the way you want it and then build it up from there. I find that stacks are one of these things that can catch you off guard really fast depending on how you want your data to be shown on different screen sizes. Do you want all your data showing on every screen size? If you've got two separate columns and now you go to mobile, what if you wanted the column on the right to come first instead of the column on the left? There's so many things that obviously we now have the freedom to do without these CSS hacks, as we say, but you just have to think about and plan. And spacing, I think, is one of these things that, is there a true answer of what's the right amount of spacing to have around a card or a padding? Should we even use margin anymore? I know there's some people on the internet that are saying, stop using margin, just use padding. And also REMS. And I think they have the right intention. Yeah, I, I've seen it. Yeah, Max Stoiber and Ryan Florence have, have gotten probably been the, the largest voices in these. I've seen they're like, margin is bad. You should never use it. And I take a step back and say, margin isn't bad, but the wrong application of margin is what is bad. It's kind of like saying JavaScript isn't bad, but when it's written bad, it's bad. That's how I think of margin. And I call this, I follow a principle whenever I lay out things of what I call encapsulated CSS. It's never taken off, but it's a term that I've used to group how I do layouts, which is an element shouldn't lay itself out anymore. Meaning like it shouldn't set its own size, it shouldn't set its own margin, and it shouldn't set its own position. And then that should be for the parent container to decide. The parent container should know, have all that those rules about where elements should be, what size they should be, how much margin in between. And you can see that's kind of been the evolution of CSS as they've added things with Flex and Grid. It's the grid container. You set display grid, but it impacts the grid items inside. It doesn't actually change the element itself very much. And then they have these one-off properties. But for the most part, like when you learn Flexbox or learn Grid, you're creating div containers that are impacting grid items or flex containers that are containing flex items. I think that's the right mental model in modern layout, which is if you need to set margin or anything in between things, it shouldn't be set on the element itself. It should be set on the parent container or using the parent container and using like a direct child combinator or something like that. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. I feel like we've gone through this weird evolution with everything would have a width and a high and a min high and min width. And now it's just make the component work on a big screen or a small screen. It just needs to kind of work. Where I see the most complex with these is that really awkward position between a small screen and a large screen. You're shrinking your grid and you're like, okay, I need to go from 12 columns to six columns and then down to four columns, then one column. And it's just getting that them numbers right where all the content just looks right is so, so hard. I think even today, as example is a table. So you've got a table in a grid and then you start shrinking it and shrinking it. And the table is like, what do I do? Do I just keep overflowing? Do I just overflow with scroll? There's so many things that you just got to get right.
And that comes down to different things like what is the right answer? Because sometimes when you go down, it really just means let's move the data that doesn't need to be displayed into like some other form so that you're still working with the table, but you only have three columns instead of six. Because some of that information is interesting, but it's not critical. And so you move it out to some other form. So responsiveness for a while, we, we like to like think of it as this like, oh, it's just simple. It'll just layout shift to stack things as soon as we move to certain layouts. And this kind of goes back to the bootstrap days. Like they had these fix, like here's our breakpoint system. And it was a pretty good breakpoint system for the time because most screens fit within those kind of things. But now we have to deal with like, am I pulling up my web page on a fridge? Because you can do that now. Like Samsung, you can browse the internet like right on your fridge. Like brave new world, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And there's some people who are bringing up web pages on their 4K TV and, and making it go the whole width. And what does that mean as far as responsiveness? Responsiveness also, like I dealt with this with a previous designer. We were working on an app that was an internal only app. And I'm like, the company only buys one screen size. Why are we making these layout shifts for screen sizes that will never happen? If they're pulling this up on their phone, we have a bigger problem than if the layout looks right. I think that's a really interesting question when it comes to business. Do you have to make your dashboard responsive because that one person may open it on their phone and then be like, it doesn't look good. And it's like, what's the likelihood someone's actually going to load that internal dashboard on a phone? It's probably very, very little. But we're still spending so much time on making sure it's responsiveness because I think as developers, we like to be perfect and we like to think that, oh, we're going to view it half screen, half code window, half the dashboard. Oh, it's all broken, so we need to fix it. And then and then you go into the real world and everyone's just viewing it full screen, super zoomed in because they've not got their glasses on that day. And that's just reality. Or they only view it on two different screens, like their desktop, like you said, or their phone. And you don't have to worry about all those different variations in between. Like, you know, here's like the 98% use case are these two screens. Just designed for those, I think we assume people are not forgiving, but like users will go, yeah, I'm obviously using this on a device it wasn't intended for. That's why my layout sucks. And people just kind of accept that. So I'm looking at your docs page right now, bedrock-layout.dev, and you have it organized in kind of two big buckets here. You have components, which includes things like the stack, which we've already talked about, and then things like columns, grid, real, split, inline, and then you also have hooks. I'd be curious to get into the hooks a little bit. So you have use container query, use forwarded ref, and use stateful ref. So are these React hooks that are already built into styled components, or are these your own custom hooks that you created? These are my own custom hooks I created to solve problems that I needed with Bedrock. At first, I almost inlined them all, but like I decided, hey, I'm doing this. I've got a mono repo. Let's go publish these as separate items. Might as well. And it's funny that you say that. For example, the use forwarded hook. The whole intention is like when you're using React forwarded ref is great because it gives you that ref that you can then map to the correct ref that you want. But what if you also want to use that ref that might, may or may not be coming from somewhere else and it may be an object or it may be a callback function. You don't get to know what that ref is coming in, but you still want to use it because you're doing something under the hood. So that's why I created the use forwarded ref so that way I could take the ref from the forwarded ref keep it in sync and then spit out a ref object that I can then keep in sync with the ref that they're passing in. Of my library, it's the most downloaded part of my library is the use forwarded ref because uh, I think React responsive modal 
has brought into their library. So every time someone uses that, and it's more popular than my library itself. So anytime someone uses that, that gets like lots of downloads and lots of love. That's what those are for. Stateful refs is also, I kind of got annoyed with the fact that you start off with like a ref object, which is not stateful, but then you run into a situation where you need it to be stateful. And so then you have to like change the way you write the code because then you have to change it to use state and then just wired it up a little bit differently. And I just wanted a drop in replacement. You can drop in use stateful ref and it will pass out a ref object, but it will be stateful. So anytime you update the current property, you will potentially cause a re-render like updating use state would. Good naming there on use stateful ref is nice, clear naming right there. I dig it. And then use container query, that should be intuitive to people who know what a container query is, but I would guess that that might not be super common knowledge these days. It's funny, the way I know container query is I listen to Shop Talk a lot. And so Chris Coyer obviously runs the most successful CSS website in history, CSS Tricks. And it's about other things besides I'm just CSS, but um, I get a lot of my kind of CSS like knowledge just via him and, and listening to their conversations. And container queries, I've always thought of as a thing that is just like everyone wants in CSS. I never really know why, but I know it's like an extremely like coveted feature that they've been wanting to get in. So what are container queries? Here's the funny thing. This was container queries, how I thought they should be and how they are now is not what this hook does. Uh-oh. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm running into it. But like the idea of container queries is like, we're running into this idea where you just want to have, and I think it's Jen Simmons who came up with the idea. You just want algorithmic design, not responsive design. You just want to like let the browser algorithmically optimize the layout for you based off the dimensions that happens to be in. And then you just kind of like let the browser take the wheel, let Jesus take the wheel there. Like, you just like set up as much as you can and let the algorithm take over from there. And that's where container queries would be helpful because you're like, hey, if my container is this size, well, this is how it is now. So I'm going to explain what container queries is now. So that way there's no question. You can go, hey, I want to listen to this container and you can do a little bit wiring up and say this div or this element is a container. And then you can have something else will listen to it. And as it changes size, just like a media query would, you can do things, you can change your CSS. So you can make it blue. You can do dumb things, but mostly for layout, you can try to switch your layout. That's not what my container query hook does though. Unfortunately, what I'm doing is I'm connecting it to an element. And then as it resizes, I'm coming back and it will return, hey, this element changed its size and did it match the size I want? And if that thing matches the size, it's true. So I guess it kind of does, but it's not getting the same information exactly the same way. Like you couldn't drop and replace container queries now for what you're trying to do. Because what I end up doing with that is I'll typically like go, hey, this element changed to this size. I want to change this to a stack layout instead of a split layout. Or I want to change this to a stack layout instead of a column layout, for example. So it's in the same vein, but it doesn't do exactly what like the modern CSS spec is. Yeah, I've just looked up the CSS spec. And to me, it looks like what it's doing is instead of saying min width of the whole screen, it's looking at the min width of the actual div. And then we'll change the CSS based upon that. Interesting. Because I've seen like, I think it's Twitter. They've said, have a completely different component for every screen size. I think it's something like React Socks is the open source version that's based upon the Twitter version. But they're saying, have a mobile component, have a desktop component, 
and then completely switch out the DOM depending on the screen size. So taking away all that CSS computation for a more React-based computation. I personally never saw any benefits from that, except from, well, I'm on mobile and I've got tons of divs that are now hidden that I may want to remove. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, should we rely on CSS more than developers want to? As in like, it's okay to have 20 div trees and 19 of them are hidden on mobile. Instead of saying the div tree must be clean and only be having the HTML in that is currently being seen. I think that's a complicated question, which you probably assume giving that to me. The Twitter thing, I feel like that's optimized for their developers so that they can have a team that only develops the mobile and a team that only develops the mid screen. I think that's what it's optimized for. And that's, they're willing to deal with the fact that they're like potentially ripping out the entire DOM and starting over again. And whatever implication that has by people potentially shifting their browser, knowing that people don't typically shift their browser that much and that they're probably going to only be on one or the other. And it's only the weird developers that are like constantly moving things around. But to say like, should we have a clean DOM? I think we should, within reason, do that. But like, not to the point where we're like over-optimizing like your for loops when like an array map or an array for each probably is just as good, even though they're technically slower. Sometimes I think we get too obsessed with like, oh, I need to have this super clean DOM or, oh, we've got quote unquote div soup out there. People don't even know like what that means anymore. So they just like, if I have excess divs, that's a bad thing. No, they're not technically bad. It's what the problem is, is when you're using so many divs that it's hard to get to the content and it's hard for the accessibility tree. But like people were writing accessible web pages with Twitter bootstrap and that definitely created a div soup to get all those layouts right. And you can create accessible websites. So when possible, yeah, like keep it clean, but not to the point where you're not building actual features, building actual value for your customers. At the end of the day, we have pretty powerful computers. Even like the low end, like 3G, like phones in India can handle like a few extra divs that are hidden in the background that are already been downloaded or already created. Already rendered. It's just hidden with CSS. It's that thing of like them developers just don't want to deal with CSS. They'd rather put a JSX element in that's a breakpoint saying at this size, do this, show this component instead. I think there's definitely value in there if there's a very specific use case. I feel like we forget that HTML and CSS are completely separate languages that are like combined. It's like a relationship and you could do more in one than the other, but it's that agreement that I think works best. I was just watching a thing today about how CSS can cause layout shifts if you write it the wrong way. And just about like the different ways that if you write it wrong, it'll cause a layout shift. So if CSS can do it, we'll probably offload as much as we can to CSS because JavaScript is already overloaded. We're already have this huge bundle size with JavaScript and it's not necessarily the optimized way to do certain types of things that like the CSS has got an engine that's closer to the metal that's probably going to do things a lot better than we can. Yes, but that doesn't mean like just because you put in CSS, everything's going to be wonderful. You're going to have problems if you put it in CSS just as much as if you do, potentially if you do it in JavaScript. And it's finding that balance. And sometimes it's like, yeah, I just want to do this quick, easy, dirty thing. And it's easier in JavaScript. I can do it in one line in JavaScript, or I can do it in six lines with CSS. And it's harder to read and understand. 
what's going to be the easier one to maintain? The one line of JavaScript, potentially. And as long as the user doesn't have any visual notice, like who cares if it's in CSS or JavaScript when you do it? It's what's easier for you to maintain long term. You mentioned accessibility a little bit back there, and you're actually wearing a shirt that says accessible right now. Accessible something, I can't see the rest of it. I'd be curious how you think about that within the bounds of this library. Are you trying to build in accessible conventions? Are you trying to say, we're not handling accessibility, that's still up to the developer? Like, How does that come into the picture here? Generally, I've, I've tried to create as many hooks to make developers do the right thing as possible. But that was something I learned like when I became the tech lead of the design system. You can't control developers. They're going to use your library the wrong way, potentially, and you can't control that. Christo's all about that. <laughs> Early versions of our design system when I was at R1, we tried to lock down the class name. We tried to lock down like all these kind of things so that way they couldn't mess with the styles. And then like nobody could get any work done because everybody had that one-off situation when where they needed to do it. And developers who were really smart found ways to still do the wrong thing if they really wanted to. They just had to go about it in a much more difficult way. And so I kind of have learned that like just make the path to the right way the easiest path and then just hope for the best. So yeah, it is important, but I've what I've embraced then is I'm just going to make the as prop available because it's style components and people can change the actual element under the hood so it's the correct semantic element. And other than that, like if they're going to create a clickable div, they were probably going to do that anyway. And it's not my library. It was like going to make that easier, less easier for them to do that. As we start closing out here, I would be really curious, are you looking for contributors? If someone wants to contribute, how should they go about doing that? 100%. I'm trying to get better about like putting all my issues out in the that I want to get done in my issue block. I think there's like four or five there right now. And putting the, hey, I want help on this. But yeah, 100% um, take contributors. The real component actually was originally someone did a PR and said, hey, this is a component I've done before. And I kind of moved it and morphed it to how Bedrock would think about a real component. It's different than that original PR, but like, yeah, if there's a use case, a layout use case that you think is common enough that you use all the time, but isn't covered by Bedrock, I would love for people to add, like propose things. And so, yeah, if they want to contribute, we can do that at the GitHub, at Bedrock. It's under a different organization, so it's Bedrock slash Bedrock Layouts, I believe. I should know my own GitHub probably off the top of my head. <laughs> We'll link that in the show notes. Where should people get in touch with you? What's like your, your Twitter or anywhere else that people can get a, get a hold of you? Um, I'm on Twitter. It's Travis Waithmare in camel case. Travis and then W&M are uppercase. Or like if you go to the React Podcast Discord server, that's where Anthony and I met. I'm like there like every day probably. Between those two, that's the, probably the best way to get a hold of me. Yeah, it's, it's addictive. I spent a lot of time there too. And, and as you say, that's how we got to know each other. So it's been great getting to hang out there and get to chat about this stuff. I've been kind of looking over your docs as you've been going. I've given you some notes on them. So I am almost a contributor. Don't technically have PRs yet, but I'm kind of a somewhat contributor at this point. If I can find a way to put your, your face on there, I'll do it. But like that requires more than just an automated like badge. Totally. Yeah, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to the show as well. We're always happy to meet our listeners and give them a chance to get on here and talk about what they're doing. So anyone else who just listens to the show and wants to talk about what they're doing, you know, feel free to reach out. I think that about wraps up for today's show. So thank you so much, Travis, for being here with us. Happy. Thanks for inviting me.
will you be having any Hacktober issues and potential pull requests as it is that time of year? That's a good question. I have not thought about. I've been like knee deep in moving from like uh, Utah to Houston for the, like the last month, and I have been basically just like updating dependencies, and that's about it for like this like library for the entire month. Yeah, don't worry about it. this episode is going to air after October anyway, so don't even trip. <laughs> oh, it's after October. Yeah, October's over. What are you guys? What are you talking about? October already already happened, Chris. Yeah, you should have said that sooner. What's the plan for Christmas? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> What's the plan for Christmas? We're going to have a Christmas-themed website. It's all going to be red and green.